The following podcast contains explicit language, including the words, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of May 16th, 2022. On this week's show, we're going to dive deep into the winners and losers in the NBA's conference semifinals. Two segments deep, because it's going to take at least one to try to understand what befell the Suns on Sunday night. And with whatever we have left of our senses, we will discuss Tom Brady's reported 10-year, $375 million deal to call football games for Fox. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Stefan Fatsis is off this week, but let's pause to praise him for two word-related accomplishments. First, he pulled off a fantastic school Scrabble championship here in D.C. this past weekend. And second, he published his first-ever crossword puzzle in the L.A. Times on Friday. We will link to it on our show page, and you can try to beat my time of 9 minutes and 31 seconds. That's 9 minutes and 31 seconds, if you dare. With us again is New Yorker staff writer and theater critic Vincent Cunningham. But savor it, because this is the last week of his heroic guest hosting run. Vincent, I'm expecting you to go out uh, hoisting, Grant Williams style, one record number of takes. <laughs> it's the Vincent Cunningham game here on Hang Up. Uh, I look forward to it. And our third this week is Slate <laughs> senior writer. Ben Mathis Lilly. He is the author of the upcoming book, The Hot Seat. If you want to know what it's about, you have to pre-order it, and you'll find out when it arrives at your door on August 30th. It's it's about college football, and it's very good, at least the parts I've read. I'm requesting a stamp just on the chapters I've read, because I cannot provide any warranty on the others. Hello, Ben. Hey, Josh. Uh, and one thing I, I want to give away, just a little bit of a spoiler here for the book, uh, emphasize to Michigan fans, remind them, one thing I un- uncovered while researching this book, Michigan beat Ohio State last year uh, in football, actually. And that game is described at length in the book. Something to consider when they're deciding whether or not to order it. Um, <laughs> good to know. Uh, and for the Joel fans out there, who uh, are all of us, Joel's back next week. Woo. I'm pumped. The halftime score of Sunday night's Western Conference semis game seven Dallas, 57, Phoenix, 27. After the game, the Mavs' Luka Doncic got asked about that score. Were, were you aware at halftime you had as many points as the Suns? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> you can probably tell that Luka was smirking as he said that, just like he was smirking after every fadeaway and step back during his 27-point first half. The Suns had 64 wins in the regular season, eight more than any other team. They made the finals last year, brought back pretty much everybody. They were up 2-0 in this series, having won the first two games by a combined 27 points. And yet, their season ended on Sunday in a 33-point loss that, as the cliche goes, was not as close as the score would indicate. And a loss that inspired post-game questions about whether it was the most humiliating playoff defeat in NBA history. Not a good outcome, Vincent. Mm. It was the it was so inexplicable. I, I I watched the game. I promise I did. I still have no idea why. For example, neither Devin Booker nor Chris Paul had a field goal until sometime in the third quarter. I, like I, I I wonder if they were visited by a ghost. 
um, the night before, whether they had a, a, like a, a bad clam uh, for, for a team dinner. I still don't know what happened. Um, whether Chris Paul finally, you know, got on everybody's nerves as he's want to do, like if this effect just kicked in on the last minute. I just, uh, I'm happy, I think, that Luka Doncic and the Mavericks are moving forward because I'm just interested in his career and this seems like a sort of chapter moment in his career, something that we'll remember when we tell the tale at the end. Um, but I wish it were a better game and I wish I hadn't seen the haunted lost looks of every single member of that team I'll, i will see it in my dreams for weeks to come i uh i like the idea that it was a uh, trip to a phoenix area shellfish uh restaurant that's uh, to blame <laughs> for this just getting the those desert <laughs> desert clams uh Can't yeah that them. was probably a poor decision uh i did also watch this game i and i'm somewhat equally baffled as to what happened uh it was one of those games where phoenix started off shooting poorly and you kind of thought like well okay they're going to improve at some point and this will turn back into a real game and then it just didn't happen and it didn't happen and you could tell that it not happening was starting to weigh on them and then it was just it was lost and it was lost remarkably early for them i mean this one was definitively over i think in the second quarter and i think that the you know, for all the attention that Luca is getting, rightfully so, for his offensive performance, like this Mavericks team is really good at defense, I guess, uh, and is that's like maybe the skill that they have that going forward could uh, be most useful to them because Booker was just swarmed by guys every time he touched the ball. They were double teaming him. They were bringing people over to cut him off. And uh, the Suns just didn't have <laughs> didn't have a response to that. You know, CP3 to some extent seemed like he just had an off shooting game, but Booker was just being shut down by design, and the design worked. Yeah, like you maybe could sense that something was a little bit off in the very <laughs> very beginning of the game when someone will have to fact check me on this, but it felt like Jay Crowder shot the first like twenty shots yes. for Phoenix. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. this. It's like, I'm glad that you're confident in your abilities, Jay Crowder, but I mean, it's the exact inverse in many ways of the Celtics-Bucks game, where Grant Williams missed a bunch of shots in the beginning of that game. You're like, you know, I don't know if the Celtics should be taking what the, you know, defense gives them here. Like, this seems like it's playing right into Milwaukee's hands, you know, smash cut, you know, a couple hours later. Actually, that turned out decently well for the Celtics. But it's just so funny to me. Like, I'm befuddled, like you guys are, um, how you would think that the Mavericks have a couple of, like, minus defenders and Luka and Brunson. Luka, just because he's not a great defender, like, um, and Brunson just for size reasons. Um, Whereas, you know, Phoenix, all season long, and in the Pelican series as well, like Mikhail Bridges was a human eraser. And then I just kept thinking over and over in this game that, you know, you think of guy like Booker getting wiped out of the game offensively. Like Mikhail Bridges, Vincent, was rendered completely pointless defensively in this game. Like the Luca got rid of him so easily. Like they got anything, they got him onto Chris Paul, they got him onto anyone they wanted on pick and rolls. And that seemed like probably a mistake in the defensive game plan 
for for Phoenix. But I mean, also Luca is just better able to deal with blitzes or any kind of defense than, for instance, Devin Booker is. Yeah, I mean, he was getting he was getting Chris Paul. He was getting a lot of Aiton, even though Aiton only played about seventeen or so minutes in this game, which was really strange. I don't know if it was for that reason because he was getting exploited by Luca or um, Monty there were Williams some reports was, that it was because he got in a in a uh, fight with Monty Williams, not like a physical fight, but after the game, Monty said it's internal. Yeah, I mean, if it's for that reason, it's a really bad time for like their personal issues to be uh, messing up the game plan because they looked uh, like they were in quicksand out there. But it it did seem to me there was one of those moments, you know, the mic'd up moments, which are usually pretty bad and pretty like the person's always very self-conscious about the fact that they're mic'd up and they're saying, you know, good defense, you know, they're like trying to sound like a floor general. But there was one where Jason Kidd was uh, coaching defense from the sideline before this, especially in his Milwaukee stint, never kind of rated Jason Kidd as a great coach. But he was like, I mean, it was like trap come up. It was genuinely impressive, like moment to moment sideline coaching. And you could tell by the movement of the players that they were actually responding to what he was saying. Now, now, come on, come on, come on. Channel five. Stay, stay. Stay home. Stay home, don't, don't, stay home. Stay home, stay home, don't. Stay home, don't. Channel, channel five, channel five, baseline. Trap, 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 trap. I think we have underrated this team defensively there there are a lot of guys i mean i am absolutely out of my mind about the fact that frank nilakina former <laughs> you know nick uh baby boy is out there playing these minutes a, a great defender by the way he's playing a lot of great perimeter defense for this team there should be some comfort for you in that he still seems completely unable to shoot <laughs> yeah i missed that open three and i thought that's frank that's, that's frank that's frank that's frank um <laughs> But he was looking. He looked good within a scheme. They really got something going on, and it does make you wonder, Ben, like what this team looks like against. Not to move on too fast from this debacle, because it, it, you can never say enough. <laughs> but it, it does make you wonder what this team is going to look like against Golden State. Like how they're going. This translates to the threat posed by Curry, Poole, Thompson, etc. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that kid moment up because I had the same reaction. Like I was intimidated listening to kid uh, that the audio of kid on the sidelines, uh, kind of quarterbacking the defense. I was like, whoa, okay. Yeah. Like you could see, you could or hear, I guess, and see in that moment uh, the intensity with which Dallas approached defense, uh, and and that played out as kind of like swarming Booker, swarming these other guys, forcing them to, to pass to Crowder, who that's actually funny, Josh. That, that was the first note I had in uh, my notes from last night is that Jay Crowder looks like he's playing in a suit of armor. Um, <laughs> and when that's like the first thing you're noticing about your uh, team's offensive uh, game plan, that's probably not a good sign. Uh, but yeah, you could see you could see in that um, kid audio the kind of the intensity with which the Mavericks, Mavericks approached the game and it totally blew Phoenix away. And it's funny that we're bringing up these kind of internal issues like Chris Paul being annoying or, or whatever seems to have happened between Aiton and Williams, because as we'll get into in other segments, like Phoenix wasn't really in our narrative of like a culture problems team. Like they're supposed to be the good culture team uh, or one of them. Um, you know, they, they have a lot of different role players. They're all working together. Uh, everyone likes Monty Williams, seems like a great guy, great coach. But Dallas came out and like, 
created an entire new narrative now because like now the entire off season it's going to be kind of wondering like what was going on there like why did phoenix respond so poorly to that like you know the mavericks were playing good defense but a lot of teams play good defense and a team of phoenix's caliber should be expected to be able to respond to that now to answer your question i would guess that the warriors are going to have an easier time dealing with it just because as you as you mentioned they have just even more dynamic ball handlers um, and if you double Stephen Curry, he's he's seen that before, and he's got a number of outlets that you can go to to deal with that. What I'm kind of curious about is is on offense. I mean, if Luca plays like he played last night, uh, I don't think anyone can stop him. I mean, you were talking about he was cooking Chris Paul because he's big, and he was cooking Aiton because he's you know shifty. Uh, there's not really much else you can do. <laughs> you know, if you're if big guys don't work and small guys don't work, there's not really a, a lot else you can do. Especially when someone like um, you know Dinwiddie is going crazy and Brunson's going crazy, so I, I'm curious about that side of it as well. Like I, I in you know the span of last night's first quarter went from basically minimizing the Mavericks in my head. I kind of thought they were like a one-trick pony team to now wondering maybe they could win the whole thing if they keep doing this. Yeah, I mean the issue with the Warriors is that a bunch of their wing defenders are hurt. Like Otto Porter is kind of hurt now. Andre Iguodala hasn't played all playoffs, and it's unclear when he would be back. Gary Payton, the second. Uh, Dylan Brooks broke his elbow, and so there's some talk that he might be able to play at some point in the Western Conference Finals. Peyton is the kind of player who could probably come out and play with a full hard cast on his entire arm. You know, he's not out there for his like offensive versatility. Like, uh, but yeah, no, that's a good point. That's true. And I was also seeing some speculation on Sunday night that Jordan Poole is about to be in for a world of hurt. Like that guy is going to get mm-hmm. hunted over and over and over again in that series. So that'll be an interesting dynamic to watch but um, yeah i can say as a, a michigan partisan that jordan Poole, we're all very happy for him but like his defense was not a strong suit in college and i could kind of tell that it's not a strong suit for him in the pros either all right let's get back into the debacle i want to fulfill <laughs> vincent's <laughs> promise that the uh, debacle talk will continue the chris paul thing is maybe the most fascinating nba story to me of the last decade because um you know, you you can't ignore this uh, bullet point that I'm looking at in front of my face. First player ever to blow five two zero leads mm. in a best of seven series. Also, the only player to blow four two zero leads. So he's really in a class of his own here. Um, and if you think of, I mentioned in the intro, like people are talking about, is this the most kind of surprising playoff belly flop ever? Like one of the other big candidates here was that Clippers team. That he had, uh, well, it could be it could be any number of those Clippers teams, but the one that got brought up a bunch was um, there was a game six against the Rockets when Corey mm-hmm. Brewer and Josh Smith with like James Harden on the bench. That's a whole other legacy issue that we'll get to in a in a minute. Um, we're just out there like raining threes on the Chris Paul Blake Griffin um, Clippers and like a home game. For the Clippers again, and that's also like a famous Doc Rivers, yeah, um, kind of de- debacle. If we're double debacling here, but Vincent, I mean, we we just saw Chris Paul go. I think it was fourteen for fourteen to clinch the series against the Pels. There's some talk of like maybe he had a a quad injury, but there's something like weird and deep going on here, um, and uh, I'm struggling to understand what it is. Well, the sort of um, secular rationalist in me says um, 
you know, Chris Paul tends to wear down as as playoffs and series go on, partially because of what we were just talking about. He tends to uh, be hunted by the opposite team for a couple of reasons, because he's small and therefore usually the, the other team's sort of big scoring wing wants to face him. And also because of the very smart reason that they want to wear him down on offense, right? They, so you're saying we should credit this series uh, defeat to Jose Alvarado for chasing him around? Uh, Alvarado the- got some miles on those those old knees. Yep. I think that's part of it. Um, and because of that, and he's been sort of, un- we, we've undersold how injury prone Chris Paul has been over the course of his career, that especially toward the ends of the seasons. Um, so I think there's a there's a fairly decent reason for that. And plus, I always thought that those Clippers teams, yes, they lost big leads. Yes, they had a lot of just that that thing against the Rockets. By the way, the rare uh, series win that besmirched both uh, <laughs> both uh, <laughs> supposed superstars on both teams, Chris Paul and uh, James Harden, that got the double the double whammy there. Um, but the sort of um, haunted spiritualist in me says, Chris Paul just has and will always have awful karma. We, we saw him kick Jose Alvarado. We saw, I don't know if you've seen this video of him getting a totally bogus offensive foul against Jalen Brunson, sort of like maybe game two of this series where he like he's riding his hip and then he just like lurches forward and grabs um, Brunson's arm, making it look like Brunson was fending him off with his right arm near half court. He's, I just think that Chris Paul and, you know, this is he's one of the few guys that just gets under my skin every time I watch him play. I just think that maybe he needs to like finally apologize to Julius Hodge and <laughs> and and just reconsider his approach his spiritual approach to the game because he's otherwise mostly unimpeachable so i just i don't know chris you might you might think about it i think we can actually synthesize those two viewpoints those two uh, intellectual approaches mm. um, i think that one thing we've we've really learned in the last few years uh, about athletes in general, especially NBA players, is that they are very conscious of narratives. Um, they are as conscious of narratives as we are watching, and, and maybe more so because it's their lives. So I think that that you could make an argument. I mean, it, this, this is what it seemed like was happening to me. We're just watching the game that once Phoenix started badly, like the other guys on Phoenix started to think about Ooh, Chris Paul always loses these games, you know? Like, Mikael Bridges... What about like, Chris Paul? Sh- Do you think Chris Paul started thinking, I always lose... Th- I'm Chris Paul. <laughs> I always lose these games. I think absolutely. Like, you know, Bridges is out there, like, short-arming those mid-range shots that he'd been making the whole season. You know, like, Booker looks aimless. Like, Aiton has whatever is going on. Like, the rest of the team had this psychological meltdown. And I would imagine, like, part of that was, like, oh, you know, like, oh, it's happening. You know, it's happening. And once you start thinking it's happening, you can't stop thinking it's happening. And just, like, everyone, no one on the team was able to deal with that. And I, and I, I, I would bet that some of it had to do with the fact that, that they were conscious of, of this history that he has. Yeah, and I mean, part of what we're um, describing is, like, explicable based on game planning and based on, like, Luca doing things that, like, Luca normally does. But, like... Spencer Dinwiddie was just on a ridiculous heater. I mean, this is a guy who had been shooting 30-some-odd percent for the whole playoffs, and that can play in to the narrative stuff too, Ben. I'd imagine if you're an opponent, you're just like, what the hell am I? Like, I can anticipate, like, Luca 
doing this to us, but like, what are, what are we going to do in a game like this when you know their their third option is just and and a lot of the times the Mavs were just like going one on one. It's like not they weren't like running a particularly sophisticated offense. It was just Brunson or Dinwiddie or Luca like kind of taking turns and like Luca's version of taking turns involves like passing the ball sometimes. Like the Dinwiddie and Brunson version didn't really and like there was this whole kind of psychological, like extra textual thing going on between Luca and Devin Booker. And I wanted to ask you about that, Ben, maybe I'll save it for the next, next segment. But there was also just like, I felt myself thinking it and like, statistically, you can't argue with it. But I was just like, Jalen Brunson is like better, the better version of Chris Paul. Like he was, he was like getting to his spots and like, (laughs) you know, money in the mid range and like backing guys down. It's like, this is Jalen. I mean, he's a very good player. But like certainly does not have a bunch of accumulated psychological baggage, Vincent. But nor is he like a Hall of Fame level guy who anyone has ever called the point god. <laughs> well, I mean, to the extent that we really believe in the Luca thing, which I do, you know, one of his specialties, I think, is um, in certain moments he can be very sort of. Luca centric, but in certain moments, he also makes his teammates look a lot better, you know? And I think that's some of the effect that you're seeing with Jalen Brunson, who, who got a head start in sort of his confidence, um, in the former series where Luca was out for a couple of games and it against the Jazz and, uh, Brunson got a real chance to star. So I think you're seeing some of the residual effects of that, some of some, some confidence kind of hanging on to him after that. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. I I think that there was a moment where I think it was after the game two win in a press conference where uh, Chris Paul and Devin Booker, who took the conference together, were asked about Luca and his greatness or whatever, and they gave each other this little sly look, mm. and they're like, you know, I, obviously tired of hearing about Luca and like sort of it was very reminiscent of LeBron and D Wade coughing in the tunnel, making fun of Dirk Nowitzki back in 2011. Um, there was this like little disdain thing that I think, I don't know, I call it karma, call it poking the bull, po- call it, you know, uh, needlessly aggravating a great player who feeds on some level of, uh, of conflict as Luca does. There are a lot of dynamics there that I think we'll be chewing on for a long time, regardless of what happens with these Mavs, regardless, by the way, of whether these Suns stay together. There is a question of DeAndre Ayton's contract, which, I mean, there might be a sweepstakes here, especially if he's on the outs with the coach. Um, so I think there's a lot of fallout, but also just like as a text, this series was just bizarre, strange, fun, everything really. All right, we'll get back to um, the NBA playoffs uh, in a moment. And the Sixers, speaking of debacles. want to get um into bucks celtics and uh whatever happened with the sixers but first ben i wanted to ask you about um kind of a parallel 
between sports and politics that I was thinking about um, after seeing the the meme of Luca smiling next to uh, Devin Booker with the fifty seven to twenty seven halftime score. Um, there was also this like you know thing with uh, Devin Booker like writhing around on the ground and calling it the Luca special. After which uh, Luca proceeded to emulate the Suns. There was the whole thing with um, Steph Curry saying that their game plan for game five against the Grizzlies was whoop that trick, referencing a song that they play in the Grizzlies arena, after which the Grizzlies beat them by like 8 million points. Um, all of this kind of adds to my en- enjoyment of these NBA playoffs, but I was wondering if you feel like the median NBA fan even like knows that any of this stuff is going on. And there is this kind of conversation about like discourse around politics being like very... Like, like, there's a, a kind of very online discourse that does not at all have anything to do with like what most voters know about or or think about. Um, and so, I guess how how much do you feel like this is missing NBA fans versus like the very online Twitter discourse missing uh, voters? Well, I think the the difference is that you can enjoy and understand the NBA without knowing any of it. Uh, you know, uh, you can't. Well. You can't really enjoy politics at all, ever. Uh, so maybe that's the wrong way. Maybe that was the wrong way to start it. Uh, but yeah, I think there's there's definitely. If you look at you know the ratings of NBA games, uh, there is a contingent of people who are tuning in just to see the best players uh, or the most famous players. And so yeah, I don't. I'm not. I don't think that the the median NBA fan probably knows the meme where they took the picture of Luca smiling at. Booker, and then put it next to the what the Renaissance painting of someone sticking yeah. out their tongue at Jesus while he was on the cross, or, or in the. You know, I I don't think that necessarily even every listener of the Slate Sports Podcast knows what I'm talking about right now, but they can all understand that there's a rivalry between Luka Doncic and Devin Booker, uh, and they can understand that Luka's a great player and that you want to see Luka in a game seven. So yeah, like I think it it, it works on both levels for the NBA in a way that it maybe doesn't work out for, I don't like the democratic party, you know, like I think it's fine <laughs> for the NBA. It's fine. If some people know this and some people know that, and some people just, you know, see that it's a game seven. And whereas some of them are like, wow, like, you know, that smirk where, you know, when, when Lucas starts talking to the sideline in the first quarter, they, they understand what's going on. You know, it all works. It's all, it's, it's just all part of the drama. I guess inside the NBA is kind of an underrated, like, middleman between like online discourse and like normie television discourse they are like frequently putting tweets uh on screen so they deserve some some credit for for bringing this joy to a larger audience but um i mean just one more quick thing on luca vincent is that he has the kind of like expressiveness of like a silent film actor and the way in which he was playing to the crowd and especially in a road game it did feel a little bit like kind of conscious legacy building or like playing a bigger game than just the game that was going on in that arena and um you know there's uh, there's a a way in which is a a foreign born player like I, i think we're past the stage where like Fans, American fans, are like skeptical of like international players, or like you know, Jokic obviously is one multiple MVP, 
P awards and Giannis is the best player in the world. Like we're, we're like a, a generation beyond that. But I do feel like the joy with which Luca plays and like the clear way in which he like relishes uh, demoralizing his opponents <laughs> um, is going to and has already sort of built his brand and reputation among like American fans. Uh, he, he's doing a good job with that. Yeah, and and I think the NBA, it's funny because there have often been sort of culture war adjacent um, spasms of like worry about like, you know, celebrations and things like this, especially like when you look at the NFL and how they try to penalize excessive celebration and stuff like that. But I think this is one of the strengths of the NBA is that like down to the broadcast, after somebody hits a big shot, the camera pans straight to the person and we, and we watch their reaction, you know? Um, and it's part of, I think the sort of accumulated lexicon of the NBA. Like you go back to Jordan and the shrug and all these other gestures, right? This is part of what we like are trained to look for. Um, and even I think median to sort of casual fans are trained to look for. And so we get these glimpses of personality and your point about TNT and inside the NBA, I think goes even into the broadcast. I've definitely heard Mike Breen like very professionally try to explain some <laughs> meme, just like just sufficiently so that the 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 median viewer can kind of keep up. And for me, it sounds like a watered down, like potted version of something that I've like spent way too much time looking at online. But I recognize that it's helpful for someone, uh, someone else. People, these personalities just kind of pop up quickly and i think the players to your point are self-conscious about that and it's part of their um sort of self-conscious performance during the games this is why i get so annoyed by like uh celebrations that are like derivative like the fact that everybody does that like you're too small Hell hand yeah. motion or like it's like get just do something else right like we all know that one um anyway there's a sidebar I think it's all to the good that there is this like sort of dense, highly semiotic way of NBA fanhood because um, I think that sometimes is what brings people along. Like the writer Kat Marnell, whenever she talks about uh, uh, getting into basketball, it's always like about the personalities. She talks about like, you know, wanting to know like sideline fashions and stuff like that. And this augments the our, our, our way of looking at the game. I think that's a portal in, not sort of a, a, a sort of obscuring outward. I, I think that's smart, and I what I really like about it is the idea of Mike Breen as the proverbial Peoria, Peoria Illinois voter. Uh, <laughs> that, like, if your meme can register with Mike Breen, uh, like you you've got it on the right level. So, back to the kind of larger theme of psychological healthiness and, and unhealthiness. <laughs> you had Giannis um, after the Bucks got blown out in, in game seven against the Celtics say, I enjoyed this series. Like, Whoa, that kind of blew my, blew my hair back a bit. Wasn't able to win. I wish we were the team that would play on Tuesday, but we're not at the end of the day. When somebody beats you, you've got to respect it. All right, dude, that's, that's what you, uh, that's, that's how you want to go in the off season. That's a loser talk, but no, it's like totally gets it right of what you were saying, Ben. It's like, uh, those of us in sports media and sports fans um, are often critiqued for being like over narrativizing um, these these games and and thinking that there's some like legacy defining thing happening every day of the week. But it's just so clear that this stuff matters in the exact same way 
to the players. It's like Giannis is talking like a guy who has a championship. I mean, Giannis is maybe the most psychologically healthy human on, <laughs> on earth. So it's perhaps a, a skewed sample. But just like compare that to what we heard from, you know, the Suns were, were there's a bit of recency bias here because the Sixers are like, there, there are way more questions about what's going on with that franchise and what's going on with those individual players going forward. And listening, Ben, like listening to the press conferences afterwards, like I could not tear myself away, like wanting to hear how Doc Rivers would explain what happened, listening to what James, how James Harden would explain what happened, and listening to Joel Embiid explain what happened. All just beautiful in their own way, particularly James Harden, the point guard, saying that he didn't shoot because the ball didn't get to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I like if we're going to be talking about psychological hauntedness, uh, we have to uh, <laughs> spend a lot of time on the Philadelphia 76ers. And the thing that's amazing about this to me, I was looking at this last night and kind of like clicking through basketball reference, like there seems to be something in the building, some sort of ghostly force. Like you can go back back from regime to regime in Philadelphia, different players, different coaches, different general managers, and every name you bring up resonates with NBA fans as like, like it, it, it conjures the image of a meltdown. Like Brian Colangelo, uh, Jimmy Butler in Philadelphia, like the Al Horford signing, the end of Brett Brown's career, Ben Simmons, Markel Fultz. I'd forgotten completely about the entire Mar- Markel Fultz story. Uh, I, I'd forgotten about Sam Hinkie. Uh, you know, and it's like no matter what they do and it, no matter who they bring in, every successive Philadelphia regime ends in the same way, which is a like comic, tragic comic second round or first round debacle in which someone takes one shot in the second half. Uh, and it's <laughs> like, it feels like it's just, it's just predestined, you know? It is just amazingly bad. The, the fact, the symmetry between James Harden's, James Harden's two shots in the uh, second half of this elimination game and what happened last year against the Hawks with Ben Simmons is just delicious for me as a person who still is holding on to his Ben Simmons timeshare. Is there black <laughs> mold behind the walls in that timeshare? I'm sure there there is. Is there noise pollution everywhere around? Yes, there is. But I still hold on to it. The other symmetry, the other thing that like you can count on with them is like weird passive aggression, sometimes outward aggression among the main players. So Joel Embiid, who last year seemed to be singling out Ben Simmons as the reason that they lost in a really terrible way. And if you listen to Simmons, it's like part of the reason that he didn't want to come back, blah, blah, blah. Um, did the same thing to James Harden. He's, you know, he's like, I think everybody was expecting him to be, you know, the Houston one, you know, the good one. <laughs> the, yeah, he's not that. <laughs> yeah. A guy who could, you know, shoot and make. And the only reason that we, uh, traded for him, that's not what he is. He's a playmaker. Um, and he, Throughout the season, by the way, has also been making like little shots at like, well, that's not my job. That's what the coaches are supposed to do. They're supposed to tell him to shoot. Um, so he's like this sort of omnidirectional thing that hits James Harden, but also hits Doc Rivers. Um, Doc Rivers is always launching some like self-protective tirade. This time he's like, I think I do a great job. And if you don't think so, write it. You know, he's just like, it, it sounds like he's doing affirmations for himself up there on the podium. Uh, I, just their attitude, like they're 
I don't want to be too much of a sort of like, you know, culture, you know, everything, you know, it's about the people and the culture and the, at a, at a certain point, it's like their team was not good enough. Besides, after Maxi, there's a big drop off on that team. I'm not a Tobias Harris believer at all. So Jimmy Butler, after the Heat clinched the series, just gleefully shouting as he entered the locker room, Tobias Harris over me. Uh, your own Weitzman, who wrote a book about the Sixers and the process, um, had a, a really good thread that uh, clarified that it wasn't exactly that the Sixers chose Tobias Harris over Jimmy Butler. It was more like they chose Al Horford over Jimmy Butler. But that just gets right back to the team culture issue. And, you know, I, it's always good to just, like, step back and remind yourself that even, and especially players that are, like, coded as bad or, like, you know, player, players that get talked about as, like, that guy sucks are, like, amazing basketball players. And it's often just, like, super contextual. Like, Al Horford was a guy who seemed useless on the Sixers, didn't play at all for Oklahoma City, and was just, like, dumped, goes back to Boston, and is, like, scoring 30 points in a Eastern Conference semifinal playoff series. And it's just, like, maybe the Sixers organization was the problem, and it wasn't Al Horford. Or maybe, you know, being the, like, friendliest possible to the Sixers, maybe he just, like, didn't fit with that team. But they thought he would fit with that team. They thought he was, like, the piece that they needed. And clearly, what, you know, for some combination of reasons, it didn't work out. And, like, as I'm looking at the remaining teams here, I mean, it's obviously um, wide open, a a fascinating um, Final Four, like, you know, the team with the best record is is not around anymore. The defending NBA champion, the de- defending uh, the both teams that were in the finals last year aren't around. But it's just like Boston seems kind of hard to es- escape as the favorite because, you know, they shot 55 threes. And for a lot of that game, it was just like, really? You're going to like go out with Derek White and Grant Williams shooting that many threes but like this is this feels like a team to me that's like built to win seven game series just because of their defense and they're not gonna and and Tatum is unbelievable just like four games in a seven game series where um they just miss a bunch of threes Tatum doesn't do something uh amazing and like their defense just like fails it it seems like overcoming them you have to like overcome three different things that are all hard to overcome and so it, they're not a team that's going to sweep you i don't i don't feel like but they're a team that's going to like wear you down and and win in in six or seven is what it looks like to me yeah i think what boston has uh is uh yeah they're not quite as subject to to the like, does Spencer Dinwiddie have a great game or not? <laughs> Wait, I need factor? to correct myself. They did sweep the Nets. They're not going to sweep <laughs> you if they're if they're if you're not the Nets, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, like Boston's got a little bit more going on than some of the than some of the other teams. Like, I think Dallas. You know, for for all that we've um, said already about Dallas and Philadelphia, like it does come down to, in some respect, like that Dinwiddie had a great game and James Harden didn't have a great game. You know, like those are two guys who are going to kind of dribble around and shoot a three pointer. 
and Dinwiddie's went in, and Harden's like, I well, they didn't go in because he wasn't taking them, but he didn't have you know the same kind of game that he had the game before, in which he was like old fashioned James Harden and was doing great. So like, there are these teams that 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 kind of live or die on that kind of play, and I think you're right that like the Celtics, and you could also I think throw the Heat in that category, are not those kind of teams. Like it's funny, I was I was thinking watching Boston and Miami. Like I used to get so bored with Kobe Bryant and like the kind of early aughts style of like backing down into the mid-range and then like one guy like kind of posting up and like twisting around for a while and then taking a fade away uh while the shot clock was running out but like because that kind of basketball became unfashionable i love it now so i love it when tatum (laughs) does it and i love it when jimmy butler does it you know like i it seems refreshing to me to see like a guy standing 15 feet of the way instead of like you know dribbling around outside the three-point line uh, but that does speak to the to the way that those teams can do a few more things, you know, like they they have a little more diversity uh, in their offense uh, uh, than some of the the kind of make or miss uh, teams out west. I can't shake the sense that we just now uh, in the Bucks and Celtics watched a finals quality series that like they those teams were playing at what seemed to me a higher level than anybody else in the playoffs it just seemed in terms of like the physicality every time somebody ran into somebody else it looked like a car crash out there um it was amazingly physical amazingly sort of tactically adroit you saw a series of uh kind of switches and 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 strategy from game to game and i just wonder if the maybe they don't sweep them but i'm wondering if like those celtics don't take care of the heat in five i i i respect the the heat's players i i wouldn't say love jimmy butler but i respect he's very good especially in the playoffs i think that's how everyone in the entire world thinks of jimmy (laughs) butler (laughs) exactly bam Adebayo, i do actually totally love and spolstra um the coach i have great respect for but i just think that this team this celtics team especially on defense especially as as you say the the i think that thing in the mid-range how they are doing that is in some ways a kind of um, just one symptom of like the fact that they're just so much seemingly stronger and more physical than every team that they face. They just like just have no fear of contact and have used that to their advantage. Um, I just wonder if we don't see them really like lay it on uh, the Miami Heat, especially since they owe them one because the Miami Heat kind of killed them on the way to their finals in the in the bubble. Um, this does have some sort of grudge match potential for the the Tatums and the Browns of the world who uh who maybe remember that that drubbing but I find that hard to imagine like I feel like the Heat are so well coached and they have they don't have just the variance of like three-point shooting in their favor they just have like so many dudes that they yeah. just throw out there that's true. um and who who may or may not have a good game I mean there's like Kyle Lowry has been hurt and so that's obviously going to be a factor, but like back to the psychological health thing, it's just so funny. Like we haven't mentioned Chris Middleton's injury, which like clearly submarined sure. the Bucks' yeah. chances. But like if you're a Bucks player or a fan, you'd be like, "All right, well, I guess Chris Middleton got hurt, so he didn't win this year. We'll like run it back next year." Whereas with the Sixers, there's like a you know Joel Embiid like missed the first two games of that series. He like 
broke his face. And instead of being like, all right, well, I guess that makes sense. You're like, oh my God, like another, another one. Oh, the funniest thing, and we should, we should stop after this. The funniest thing in the doc press conference was talking about how young Joel Embiid was. He just kept going on and on about like, oh, he's so young and he's still learning. He's like, I looked it up. I was like, I don't think Joel Embiid's that young. He's like in his late twenties. It's like yeah. not that it's not that young, Doc. Like you're this guy is, <laughs> you know, pretty soon gonna be in the tail end of his his prime. But if that's what like helps you get to sleep tonight, then uh, then please. Who am I to he also you? said, Yeah, when I came here, nobody expected us to win. It's like that's not yeah. true. <laughs> <laughs> Just false. Doc he's he's telling himself lots of stories, but you know, I guess we do that. Up next, just great to see Tom Brady land on his feet. This week on our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about a crazy happenstance from over the weekend. The Cincinnati Reds throwing a no-hitter, not officially a no-hitter, but a no-hit game that they lost, and how we should feel about amazing individual performances in defeat. If you want to hear that, you have to be a Slate Plus member, and you don't just get bonus segments on this show, as well as slow burn and others you get the good feeling of supporting this podcast knowing the show would not be possible without your support you also get unlimited reading on the slate website um if you want any or all of that you need to sign up go to slate.com slash hang up plus that's slate.com slash hang up plus A little more than a month ago, the Boston Globe's Ben Volan reported that Tom Brady's unretirement was a lot messier than it originally seemed. There was a two-phase plan, according to Volan, um, and it had been for Brady to first become a Miami Dolphins minority owner, then have a planned change of heart and decide he actually wanted to play a quarterback in the NFL, and maybe he could just play it for the <laughs> Dolphins. Um, all of that allegedly got scuttled when ex-Dolphins coach Brian Flores sued the team and the league alleging racial discrimination in hiring practices and accusing Dolphins owner Stephen Ross of paying him to lose games on purpose. And so with all of this heat on the team, uh, Brady had to settle for going back to the Bucks, and he learned his lesson about secret behind-the-scenes business scheming. That lesson apparently being do more of it and maybe practice makes perfect. Uh, last week, Fox CEO Lachlan Murdoch announced in an earnings call that Brady would become Fox Sports's lead NFL TV analyst whenever he chooses to retire. The New York Post then reported that Brady will earn $375 million over 10 years for that gig, more than he's made cumulatively in his NFL playing career. Ben, were you surprised by this deal? And what do you make of it? I think that my reaction to this deal could be captured uh, by the fact that I just finished writing a book about college football, largely Michigan college football. I'm interested enough in that topic to write a book about it. Tom Brady is one of the greatest Michigan college football players of all time. He played there when I was 17. And I reacted to this news with kind of like, hmm, that guy? 
<laughs> uh, you know, I know that he's interested in becoming a media figure. I know that he has a, a series uh, on ESPN. I know that he has a, a podcast. I was listening to Sirius Radio uh, this fall, actually, while driving, and I heard about 500 of the ads in which Tom Brady talks to Oprah about Stedman, I think, on his podcast. <laughs> uh, so I know they're really trying to sell it, and yet I don't see it as a personality thing, you know? I mean, I we'll get into the comparison here, but, you know, the success of Tony Romo, I think, is obviously a factor. Uh, but I, you know, as a huge Michigan football fan and appreciator of Tom Brady's greatness as a player, uh, have not been interested in my own life in kind of consuming uh, his thoughts on the rest of the world and even really on football. So, you know, I, I don't know. Is that worth, is it worth 375 million? Uh, I, I wouldn't have laid out that money myself, but uh, maybe that there's some other uh, reasons uh, going on there that I'm, I'm not thinking about. My favorite thing about this and the, the most uh, Tom Brady thing about it, you know, when you think about him being in some ways like the person with the most charmed life that you could ever think of, is that somewhere in that contract, it actually says, whenever he chooses to retire. What does that mean? Does that mean that they're expecting him to retire next year or the one after that? Or is it just like a, like a, a McDonald's uh, Arch Deluxe coupon that he can cash in in five years if he decides to keep playing? Like, what does what does it even mean? Um, Why did I, I you just... choose McDonald's Arch Deluxe out of any, any <laughs> example of anything you could have a coupon for? This is a big tangent, but uh, as a young man in Washington Heights, I still remember cutting the coupons for Arch Deluxe and walking down 181st Street and getting that sweet sandwich all all the summer when it was the rage. It's a big moment in my emotional development. I'm Topic glad for I another asked. time. Yeah, <laughs> um, Tom Brady, man, he just like it's the it, nobody else has these just like prerogatives and great for him he's a great player and that's why that's why you get those things i agree with ben i'm not sure how good a broadcaster he's going to be i think uh tony romo yes and also um i think the thing that might have tipped him over into this is peyton manning and the manning cast on espn2 that he basically like runs a talk show with his brother while the football games go on um i think some of that rivalry might still be alive i don't know what to make of it I don't even know, like, if a commentator is worth in any sense a hundred million dollars, not, not to mention 375. I don't know what the huge value add is, but I, you know, more power to him. I, I, I hope to get one of these whenever I choose coupons at some point in my career. I don't know when or how, but I, more power to Tom Brady. How many arch deluxes? At least, uh, <laughs> at, at least in the nine, in the nine figures that he would be able to buy. So there were a lot of good analyses of this written uh, over the past week. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker did a whole podcast about it for uh, the, the press box at The Ringer, which is great if you uh, want to listen to that. And also you can enjoy hearing them find out the dollar figure live while they're recording the podcast, <laughs> which is a fun moment. Um, but a lot of um, what the, con the conjecture I'm seeing is that the, the key line in the Fox Sports statement is, will also serve as an ambassador for us, particularly with respect to client and promotional initiatives. And I, I think that works in, in two ways. Um, one, it's like the idea of like Tom Brady, like backslapping on a golf course for Fox, like, you know, for 
you know, whining and dining advertisers or, or whatever, whatever happens on golf courses. I've never been in, in, involved in a, a scheme like that, but that's my understanding. Um, but also just that Fox, after losing Buck and Aikman to ESPN, there's all this like kind of announcer shuffling going on. CBS has like the Romo and Nance team. And Fox is left as, with their number one team being like Kevin Burkhardt and Greg Olson, whose only kind of handicap is that they're not famous. Like, they're both good announcers. But, like, is that what Fox wants? Like, no, Fox, uh, I think since the 90s when they paid $8 million to get John Madden, they've had this sort of, you know, Johnny-come-lately sort of attitude where they want to prove themselves as being serious and legitimate among not only NFL broadcasters, but among networks. And, you know, there's speculation, Ben, that maybe if Tom Brady is there, that would help Fox get better games. Or just there, There's a kind of, like, value in having him that isn't won't necessarily be seen or heard by viewers, but will, like, accrue to the network in, like, both kind of hard and soft ways, I guess, is the, is the theory behind it. Yeah, I mean, the analogy my mind went to, um, and as uh, my colleagues at Slate know, know uh, the analogies that my mind goes to often involve college football, uh, is like the waterfall in the locker room, which I know this is something that has been talk talked about on Hangout before. Like, college football programs have a lot of money. Um, they spend it on things like, famously, I don't even remember if it's Alabama or Clemson, uh, but has a waterfall in their, lock in their player locker room. Um, and the... Uh, I guess you would say utility value of a waterfall to winning on the field uh, is is zero. You know, I don't. It doesn't improve the player's performance uh, to be near that kind of. I, you know, maybe as a, a kind of a mental, a soothing mental, like the rustling sound of the of the the babbling brook <laughs> kind of thing. But but mainly the point of that is to show recruits and to show people around the game we're serious. We have so much money here that we can build a fucking waterfall in our locker room. And that was uh, the argument that I think it was Jeff Eisenberg in Yahoo Sports was making about this this Brady hiring. And probably, you know, that figure, like $375 million, uh, like an absurd amount of money for anything, especially like a first-time announcer. Um, but within this kind of, you know, game of musical chairs that's happening um, in... NFL broadcasting and in and in broadcasting more sports broadcasting more generally, um, networks are kind of seeing Amazon and YouTube and seeing uh, these other entities kind of edge in, uh, and they need to say like, hey, no, 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 we're we're really serious. We're really serious about sports. We have a lot of money. We have you know, so like we we are ready to do whatever it takes. And so I guess it's kind of like maybe Yahoo or sorry, pardon me. I guess it's like maybe Fox doesn't get 10 years and $37.5 million worth of performance out of Tom Brady announcing games specifically, but they got to send a signal, you know, throw up their peacock tail feather uh, in a way that has some use f for them uh, as well. Vincent, the thing that's really interesting to me about this is like how it gives a, a little bit of a window into how Brady perceives itself. Because if we are comparing him to Peyton Manning as as one does the like the Manning deal where he does the show for ESPN but like his production company actually owns it and there's also all these other shows like he has this whole like kind of burgeoning media empire and then with the Manning cast he basically gets to um not 
have to go to the site of the games yeah. and like not be burdened by like being compared to John Madden. He's like doing his own thing and just like having a chat with his brother and uh, you know other other famous people. It's like a very smart way to differentiate himself and just like have what seems like a better job. Whereas Brady, you know, we'll have to see how it plays out, but appears to be doing a more kind of conventional um, role of being the lead broadcaster for Fox's like weekend NFL games. And so, you know, he's clearly being compensated very well for taking on that role. We'll probably be able to take a charter plane, uh, you know, to Dallas or or Green Bay or, or wherever the day of the game if he wanted to. But he also has is taking a risk of like maybe he won't be good at this. Like we just saw Drew Brees very not good at that job um, <laughs> and is uh, reportedly out at NBC after one year, although there's some kind of dueling ro- reporting on that. So is, is there any sense in which a guy who's taking $375 million is taking a risk, Vincent? I think that he is taking a risk because he, like many of the big personalities in football these days, one thinks of Bel- Bill Belichick, has done a good job of basically um, totally shielding his personality from any uh, criticism. Uh, and he is sort of, if he plans to do this with any uh, level of excellence, I mean, he is putting that on the risk because he's going to have to put himself out there in order to be good at it. Um, There's this question of like, will he be critical of right players or like, will he, you know, he does show some personnel, some manufactured personality on social media. Like he's, I'm sure he's got a team of like a hundred people who are posting funny videos for him, but like the press conference personality is like very kind of studied neutrality. Right. right? Yeah. It's very different when you, you can put a face and you, and you know, when it's hard to deny like in person, when somebody's trying to be funny and whether they are or not, you know, all those kinds of things. I, I think we can't discount the extent to which this is a case of somebody offering you too much money to, to, to turn down like i'm still not totally convinced that he's like yes he's done these media things i think that is as part of the athlete playbook these days but i've i have zero evidence that it's something that he's actually passionate about like when you hear draymond green talk you're like that guy wants to do this is like <laughs> something that he's thought about and he has a very like specific plan to be to be increasingly good at it i i really see no evidence of that with tom brady so uh, it, it could be just a you know to your point about the the method, if it was all his idea and he really was planning a a, a multi year career in this, maybe he would have tried something more creative like uh, Peyton Manning. Um, but this is just like you know, in some ways, it's like I, I liken it to a '90s magazine, right? It's just the big time editor offers you a big <laughs> contract and a car to take you from your assignments, and you just you. I mean, it's like it's the old model; it works, and so you take the you take the gig. Um, and so we'll see how 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 he does i it's just so funny to me ben to imagine that there's any amount of money i mean i guess maybe this is why i'm a a failure in our capitalist society it's just like how much money do you need like why would there be any amount of money that could get tom brady to do anything (laughs) and like it it doesn't obviously like i'm so i enjoy what i do i enjoy the the work that i do i imagine that i'll want to be like 
researching things and writing about things until I'm old. I'm not a person who's like, he should just go on a beach like for the next uh, 40 <laughs> years. Like I understand wanting to have a job and wanting to do work, but just sort of like what Vinden said, there's no evidence that this is something he's ever shown any kind of interest in. And so just, yeah, this, this idea that like, um, they made him an offer that he can't refuse. It's like, there's no offer that Tom Brady can't refuse. Like, Yeah, I thought of that when I was watching. I think there's a clip that you sent around that I had, I had seen as well. Uh, it's, it's titled something like Tom Brady's Best Moments on the Manning Cast. Uh, and it's from, from when he was, uh, uh, did a, a spot with them uh, during a, a Saints game this year. Uh, the first thing I was surprised to see, having not watched the, you know, I've heard about the Medicast, but I, I didn't realize that even Peyton and Eli don't have to be in the same place. No, like I thought whole, that was like that's the whole shtick. <laughs> they like do so little work. I, I thought like at least they have to share a, a room in their house, but. Uh, oh, not to, and it nope. really, it really doesn't serve viewers. Like they're often talking over each other. I mean, yeah. For me, the novelty like wore off a bit, and it's just like often just like a bad zoom. They're just like, wait. Okay, you go. No, you go. <laughs> and this was a clip that purports to show Brady's best moments, and most of them were, like, actually Peyton Manning's good moments. Like, Peyton Manning would make a good joke about Tom Brady, and he would kind of, like, chuckle. Um, <laughs> like, a- and that is, like, supposed to be, like, the evidence that, like, he's going to like he's gonna be okay as an announcer. Um, and in addition to that, like, kind of, like, as we've been talking about, his his lack of uh, demonstrated, you know, charm or or, or you know, comic timing or whatever— um, he also has a lot of baggage in a way that, like, if you compare him to someone like Phil Sims or Troy Aikman, who, who, you know, guys who have been successful at this, they also don't necessarily have the most, like, penetrating intellects, uh, you know, and vivacious personalities, but they have this kind of, like, uh, glow of, uh, respectability and, and glory, you know, football glory that's on them. And, you know, they're like, you know, they're tolerable enough as companions for a football game. Um, they won a Super Bowl. Like, that's kind of the... I, yeah, I guess, you know, I guess like, Romo didn't win one, but it used to be, I guess, that winning a Super Bowl was, like, you know, right. the, you know, the you're, ticket. You're, like, you're like, a, you're like a, a guy who knows football or whatever. You know, it's, so, like, they're, they, like, can fit into that role. Brady, like, in addition to, like, not really having, like, the, the kind of energy that, that we've, you know, or at least we've seen the energy that Romo has or the insight or the personality that someone like Madden has, like... Brady's been all around so long that he also has some baggage. Like there's his connection to Donald Trump, you know, the hat in the locker. Um, there's his questionable, uh, you know, nutrition and fitness and pliability advisor who has his like <laughs> series of, cha- you know, like his chains and his, there's like some, you know, is- he had some issues in New England with like uh, that guy giving advice to other players. They mentioned on the Manning cast Tom Brady has NFTs and he is affiliated with a, a a crypto exchange. You know, currently that market is collapsing. Like, you know, and not only is he someone who hasn't like shown himself to be a strong personality, but he also has a lot of things that viewers know about him that might turn them off uh, to him in a way that's not true of like uh, someone a little bit more generic, like a like a Sims or Aikman. I don't so know. Like, but if you're, if we're being like really cynical, like and talking about serving viewers, like one way you can serve viewers is by being a good announcer, but also just like people want to be in the presence of famous people and celebrity. And like, you know, it, it's kind of a truism that nobody tunes in or tunes out because of the announcer, but like people will want to watch because Tom Brady is like the most, one of the most famous people in America. 
I mean, that seems pretty straightforward. Yeah, that's a way it's in which it's interesting. Um, he is an A-list celebrity. His wife is an A-list celebrity. Um, previously, A-list celebrities have not taken jobs this <laughs> demeaning, if you will, <laughs> that require them to do a regular amount of work. So it will be interesting to see, uh, you know, how that plays out in the booth of like, you know, someone who's that famous. And and I think you're right. Right. I hadn't thought of that. But like people may like keep listening to that broadcast, like to hear Tom Brady say something like accidentally about his wife's life, you know, like that's not a factor we've, <laughs> we've, we've previously had in a lot of NFL announcing booths. Uh, well, but you know, I think that's, I, I think that's not right, actually. Like, I, I think that there's precedent with Magic Johnson being like, if you go back and look at a lot, some of those old games, it's like Magic Johnson is in the booth in the finals, like very famously, like adding nothing to the proceedings. And like OJ Simpson was like the famous guy who was on Monday Night Football. And I didn't know this, but like Brian Curtis mentioned this in their podcast that like OJ Simpson got kicked out of the announcing booth during a Super Bowl. And they had Joe Theismann. This is in the mid 80s. Like while Joe Theismann was still playing, they had him just like call the Super Bowl in lieu of O.J. Simpson because just O.J. Simpson was so bad at it. Um, so I think there is precedent for just having a celebrity announcer, but there's also like precedent, for example, like Michael Jordan is like it, it would it would have just felt like maybe it's only saying this in retrospect, but it just seems like it would have felt weird. It's like you're Michael Jordan, like you don't need to do this. And and Brady is definitely in that territory in American sports where it just kind of feels weird. Like why are you? What what are you doing? Like Philip, there was reporting in the New York Post that like another potential Hall of Famer, Philip Rivers, had no interest. It's like Philip <laughs> Philip Rivers is like there's an offer that Philip Rivers can refuse, but not Tom Brady. And also Philip Rivers is actually he was a great talker during his career. I would have I would have tuned in for him over Brady. But any anybody with a pliability advisor, as Ben <laughs> says, is just a, a wild card. Who knows? Who knows what he'll do next? And now it is time for After Balls. And as Zach Cram of The Ringer pointed out, and I will quote from him now, only one road team had ever won a Game 7 by a greater margin than Dallas did on Sunday. That was the 1948 Philadelphia Warriors, who played in the pre-NBA Basketball Association of America and beat the St. Louis Bombers by 39 points. Uh, We must go to basketball reference. 85 to 46, Warriors over Bombers. The Bombers shot 17 for 97 for a cool (laughs) 17.5%. There were seven um, players who scored in double figures in this game, none of which I think are real people. The Warriors five were Joe Folks, Chick Helbert, Howie Dalmar, Chink Crossan, and George Sineski. The Bombers, too, were John Logan and my favorite, Bellis Smalley. Um, Bell- Another Bellis Smalley playoff choke job. <laughs> Bellis Smalley's nicknames were Old Bones and Rebel. He was one of the first jump shooters, 
And intriguingly, the photo on his Wikipedia page is captioned Smalley. It's actually captioned Smalley, if somebody wants to go in and correct it. Uh, in a Bennett's prune juice advertisement circa 1950, as I'm sure you're doing right now, I immediately Googled Bennett's prune juice and found, I'm not making this up, a different jump shooting pioneer, Kenny Sailors, <laughs> also had an endorsement deal with Bennett's prune juice. Here is a quote from <laughs> Kenny Sailors via the book Jump Shot, written by Lou Friedman. They didn't even ask me, Benny Sailor said. They just used my name and sent me cases of prune juice. The club made the money, whatever it was. Players didn't get a dime on any of that stuff. I got all the prune juice I wanted to drink, but that wasn't too much. I did drink it. It was okay. <laughs> ben. <laughs> what better slogan for any product could you possibly conjure than, I did drink it. It was okay. Kenny Sailors on Bennett's Prune Juice. NIL, Bennett's Prune Juice. It's time for a comeback. Ben, you're going to uh, treat us to a Bennett's Prune Juice. What is your Bennett's Prune Juice? Uh, Josh, my Bennett's Prune Juice concerns Greg Norman, the uh, 67-year-old golfer and CEO of Live Golf, which is basically a startup competitor to the PGA Tour financed by a Saudi Arabian sovereign wealth fund. Uh, Greg Norman found his way into the news last week for responding to a question about the Saudi government's involvement in the 2018 kidnapping, murder, and dismemberment of Saudi expat and United States-based journalist Jamal Khashoggi by saying, quote, look, we've all made mistakes, and you just want to learn from those mistakes and how you can correct them going forward. Norman also added regarding the kingdom's execution of 81 alleged criminals on a single day this March that, quote, quite honestly, I look forward, I don't look back. I don't look into the politics of things. I heard about it and just kept moving on. Uh, Norman's comments were headline material uh, on ESPN, CNN, and other outlets, and were perhaps related to golfer Phil Mickelson's announcement in a statement released by his agent that he would not be playing in this week's PGA Championship. Mickelson has been in a defensive media posture and has not played a tournament since February. That's when writer Alan Shipnick reported comments that Mickelson had made regarding the Saudis and the Live Tour. Uh, we know they killed Khashoggi, Mickelson said, and have a horrible record on human rights. They execute people over there for being gay. Knowing all of this, why would I even consider it? Because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reshape how the PGA Tour operates. That's what Mickelson said, by which he meant leveraging the PGA Tour, uh, using Liv, into being more deferential to the interests of top stars like Phil Mickelson. So uh, in addition to basically being criticized into hiding after this, Mickelson has lost endorsements from KPMG, Heineken, and the business software Workday. Live Golf issued uh, a statement itself in response to the stories about Greg Norman's quotes, uh, in which it described Khashoggi's killing as, quote, reprehensible. And last week, the PGA Tour denied multiple golfers' applications to play in a Live event in London in June, uh, those golfers including Mickelson and Sergio Garcia. So the consensus in the world of golf is clear. You can't give Saudi Arabia a pass for its human rights record just because you want to do business with it. Uh, as a casual follower of golf who has a day job at Slate, as a professional follower of the United States news and politics, this surprised me because giving Saudi Arabia a pass for Khashoggi's murder is all but the official policy of the United States. That's true even now that the country is being run by Democrat Joe Biden, a nominal supporter of human rights and the so-called liberal international order. Biden promised uh, to make the Saudis a, quote, pariah over Khashoggi during the presidential campaign, but then, as president, chose not to formally ban de facto Saudi ruler Mohammed bin Salman from the U.S. for his role in that killing. 
And then in November 2021, Biden approved the sale of $650 million of air-to-air missiles to the kingdom. And according to various reports, his administration has made multiple recent diplomatic contacts with the Saudis in an effort to persuade them to increase oil production. None of this, in my experience, uh, made as much news or generated as much outrage as Phil Mickelson and Greg Norman's willingness to be involved with Saudi-funded golf tournaments. So there are some explanations for why golfers are facing more backlash from the golf community on this subject than Joe Biden is facing from the American public and press. The PGA Tour has a financial interest in defending itself against the Live Tour, which gives it an incentive to be hostile to the Saudis. The U.S. in general, though, has a financial interest in cheap gasoline, which gives it an incentive to be forgiving to the Saudis. The American press and public, for better or for worse, also tends to reflexively criticize Democratic politicians for not being strong and ruthless enough when it comes to subjects like crime and foreign policy. So a liberal president being self-interested and craven and implicitly condoning the kidnapping and murder of a journalist doesn't fit into any of our prefabricated outrage formats. These explanations, though, aren't really good reasons. And incentives aside, I think we can all agree in the abstract that we should probably hold the Biden administration just as accountable for its relationship with Saudi Arabia as we hold Phil Mickelson and Greg Norman for theirs. And by the way, Alan Shipnick's book, Phil, comes out this week. Um, the simplest explanation, and I think the most correct one, is just if, if Joe Biden had said the same thing that Phil Mickelson said, that would have made a lot of headlines. It's like, in terms of like, media outrage cycles, it's way less important what you do than what you say, especially <laughs> yeah. anything that is said in private and gets, it's like all the like Trump stuff, Ben, like all the stuff that the quotes that are like revealed in books that are exactly identical to things that Trump said in public, it's like is revealed for the first time. It's just like the, the fact that the Mickelson thing wasn't something that he said publicly and didn't want to be revealed um, I, I think made it seem more interesting and, and salacious in addition to just it being absolutely appalling what the, the sentiment that he expressed. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, we actually had some of that with Trump uh, last week as well, like where the, a, a new book is coming out where he is uh, supposed to have said that, like, why don't we just like send missiles at Mexico and then deny it? And the reaction to that was like, oh, that's crazy. But like also that is United States military policy in a lot of places is to do things and then say we didn't do them. So yeah, I think I think you're probably right that some of it is just like just hearing our rationales said aloud is offensive uh, in a way that that like just doing it is not. Now that we have solved foreign policy, uh, we can bow out for the day. Our producer is Kevin Bendis to listen to past shows. And subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcast. Thank you, Ben Mathis Lilly, for uh, guesting this week. But I need to thank Vincent about like six times more than I thank you <laughs> because of his uh, amazing run of shows. Vincent, it's been uh, such a, a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun. Just a farewell. We'll be back on the on the case. I am Josh Levine for Vincent and Ben. Remembers on Beatty, and thanks for listening. Now it is time for our bonus segment for Slate Plus members. Hello, members, and uh, there are a couple game sevens. 
uh, in the NHL, which were much better than the Game 7s in the NBA. Some overtime games, playoff hockey never disappoints, except when it does disappoint. Um, but there was a kind of an under-the-radar sports event on Sunday, which is that the Cincinnati Reds threw a no-hitter that's not actually considered an official no-hitter because uh, the Reds pitchers didn't go nine innings, and that is because they lost the game. <laughs> uh, Pittsburgh beat Cincinnati one to nothing. Uh, young star pitcher for the Reds, Hunter Green, went seven and a third innings, no hits, and picked up the loss because the following happened in the bottom of the eighth. Uh, Sawinski of the Pirates grounded out to first. Come on, Sawinski. Castro walked. M. Perez walked. Gamble walked. So Green walked the, uh, uh, well, Green issued the first two walks. Then Warren came on for Cincy, issued a walk. Then there was a ground out that drove in a run, and then a pop out. So the the Pirates scored a run, went up one nothing, and won. The latest indignity for the Reds in their 9-26 and start for the season. There's some talk that they might be the worst baseball team ever. Yes, even worse than the Cleveland Spiders. That time, the Cleveland Spiders were really bad. Um, but Ben and Vincent, this got me thinking, pitching a no-hitter and losing is like a very kind of particular sports feat um, of like triumph and pain all wrapped up into <laughs> one package with a bow on it. And Vincent won um, kind of an analogy that we were uh, thinking about before we recorded this was uh, the, the famed Devin Booker game. Yeah, I mean, he scored 70 points. There was a big celebration afterward, as I'm sure there was for this pitcher. I mean, it's a it's an amazing thing. But um, 70 points and lost in that game, David Booker did. I think that added to his sort of uh, bad rap, I think, as a sort of uh, empty stats guy. Um, but I can't th- – I mean – I, I'm assuming Wilt won the won the 100 point game after which the the holding up the sign with your your points on it is modeled. Um, ben, is there another one? I is is there anything even close to this? Uh, I think there's like um, Barry Sanders' entire career uh, <laughs> is a good is might be a good analogy, or just like name any other like Detroit Lions standout uh, of as far as like incredible achievement combined with just like gruesome losing. Yeah, so the Philadelphia Warriors, as just just as they defeated the St. Louis Bombers and what everyone's come to know as the Prune Juice game, although it had nothing to do with Prune Juice, <laughs> the Philadelphia Warriors did beat your New York Knicks one sixty nine to one forty seven. Um, but if you take close. if you take out Wilt's yeah. uh, points, the Knicks won one forty seven to sixty nine. So great, <laughs> great. <laughs> well, okay, so who was? Who was the leading scorer for the Knicks in that game? Because that would be the like the analogous person, right? Uh, I mean, they, they if you score 147, someone's got to be lighting it up. Like you've got the box score open, I assume. Like what? Who is? Yeah. Our so top the Nick? Knicks had three guys that scored more than 30 in that oh. game. Um, Richie yeah. Guerin was the leading scorer with 39, and then Cleveland Buckner, which is an amazing name, 33, name. and Willie Knowles had. 31. So uh, just a heroic effort for for the Knicks. I think they should be proud of uh, all they accomplished in that game. This has become kind of a reading old guys' names episode. <laughs> uh, and it made me, I, I thought of that when you were reading the uh, box score from the game this weekend. Swinsky Grounds Out sounds like the name of a book that was written about baseball uh, in the 1940s, but is uh, <laughs> something that is uh, still happening in the uh, in the present day, apparently. So I believe you're incorrect, Vincent. I don't know. We don't know what they did behind closed doors, but the quotes 
from the Reds after the game do not suggest that a celebration was no upset. celebration. <laughs> what, Hunter, what Hunter Green said was, it would have been great to have a different result, but it is what it is. Just mm. so the Reds are in the midst of a season of just absolute misery. They sold off all of their players except for Joey Votto, who himself is having a bad year. Hunter Green is um, an amazingly talented rookie, but otherwise it's just uh, a, a season of despair for the team and, and fans. So, um, whereas if, if I'm remembering right, the Devin Booker game when they lost to the Celtics 130 to 120, the Suns were bad, but like it's a kind of game and a scoring performance by a young star like Booker that gives right. you hope for the future. It's like when Jordan scored uh, 63 against uh, the Celtics and Larry Bird famously called him, you know, uh, God dressed up as Michael Jordan or something like that. I mean, it's sort of the, one of those, you know, Pyrrhic victories that we expect from young and up and comers. I guess in baseball, I don't know, like maybe we should see, as Reds fans, for the purposes of this segment, we should see the performance by Hunter Green as like a, a promising sign for the team's future. But like, there's so many regular season games in baseball. There are like so many things that a team needs to be successful. I can totally understand why this would only be seen in a negative light. It's just like <laughs> the only good thing we've done all year still ends in misery. There's like, even if this had been successful, there's like no path, Ben, that we that we see to like success in the future. Maybe that's how Lions fans felt when, you know, Barry Sanders would do one of his amazing runs. Well, I think that actually speaks to an important difference between the league because, like, the, the what keeps Lions fans coming back is that they are always ready to get like the first pick of the draft or the second one, which they had this year, and um, you know, kind of renew that hope cycle. And Reds fans, and I, I, I happen to have family in in Cincinnati, the Cincinnati area, and I, so I could speak to this authoritatively. Not there is not any generating of a hope cycle being taking place right now. Uh, it is uh, kind of a more pure contempt and disinterest. Uh, and, you know, like you bring up Hunter Green, and like I think that the probably the Reds, you know, the typical Reds fan reaction right now is to just see Hunter Green as a player that is going to be leaving the Reds soon. Uh, and there's a number of markets in which the Pirates are another one. Uh, you know, the Rays uh, are another one, the Orioles. Um, there are a lot of markets in baseball where this is kind of like the attitude toward promising new players. But the Rays are um, good and have been good. The Rays have the like the thing like where they might get good enough before the guys leave to win, but then there's also like the teams that like that like you're guaranteed to just be in the dumpster uh, before anything happens. Well, the Rays have had a prolonged run of success while also treating their like players as like chits that can be bought and sold in an instant, which I, I'm sure makes it hard to connect with the team. But plus there's just like perpetual issues with that stadium and that fan base. Whereas with in Cincinnati, I think you could legitimately argue that as a fan that like ownership really screwed you over and like why why should I care at all about this team? There's like no sense that um there, there's been a track record of success that they can bank on to get goodwill as they enter this rebuilding phase. But it, I, I guess maybe the the thing that I find interesting here, Vincent, is like what we talked about with with Hunter Green saying it is what it is, and like with the yeah. Larry Bird talking about Michael Jordan, just like the kind of manner in which a 
valiant personal performance is overwhelmed by team failure or defeat and just like the the lanes that you need to stay within to like pretend like you really only care about the team success <laughs> and that your individual yeah. success like the booker thing again does feel like an exception where maybe because the team was at the beginning of its contention cycle like it was a rare moment when they were allowed to be honest that this was cool it's one of those things where baseball is paradoxically good as a mortification sport which i think maybe helps sand away at some of the coolness is that you know in basketball there are all these limits it's your other teammates there's also just time ticking and ticking away so you see kind of the, even a great performance you can see the limits around it and sort of make your calculations and and make allowances whereas baseball when something like that's happening, when people are just being walked and you know there's a disaster afoot, time just stands still. And everything you think about the team just starts to settle on your shoulders. I just think that if there is a team, is there if there's a team sport where something like this can happen and it only feel bad, it's baseball. Because in that inning, that's it. You're you are lost in time. You are afloat in space. And every bad association, every bad memory, every gripe with ownership just it just gets to sit on your shoulder and talk to you um so i think there maybe might be nothing like a baseball meltdown in this regard basketball always has um some coolness behind it i still feel great about Giannis yesterday for example uh, baseball's not like that there's just a funk after something like this that just it's hard to wash away I thought you were going to uh, be uh, referring to the length of the baseball season as well, because I feel like that had to <laughs> that be too. a part of it. You know, like what is the re- the Reds' record now? Is like, what did you say, like nine and twenty-five, something like that? And like when you hear those numbers, you add them together in your head, and then you subtract them from one hundred and sixty-two, <laughs> and it's just like that feeling <laughs> of how much longer this is going to go on must have been weighing on those guys in the locker room and the fans in the stands, if there were any. Uh, as well. And uh, so it is in that way, I think that you're right. Wait, <laughs> you said mortification. Um, that the Cincinnati Reds' current baseball season reminds us how long we will be dead for. <laughs> On that pleasant note, thank you again, Ben and Vincent. And thank you, uh, Slate Plus members. We will be here next week and hopefully for many weeks to come. <laughs>